Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Football Show. Welcome to the Athletic Football Show. Today's Tuesday, December 28th. I'm Robert Mays. Joining me today is my good friend, Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm doing well. We're doing another mailbag today coming off of the Christmas weekend. Were you at home? Were you in Kansas City this weekend? No, we went down to Miami, Key West area. Uh, we we're supposed to be there for a few days and things didn't quite work out. So we ended up actually coming back and flying on Christmas morning to get back to Kansas City uh, so we could spend the rest of the day here and uh, with our dog. So a little bit of uh, a lot of travel going on, but happy to be back home. We were going to go to New Jersey on flying on Christmas night to go see my fiance's family, and we didn't end up doing it. And it was nice to be able to just kind of chill out, even though I did miss seeing them, missed out on seeing them. So I think it's been a strange year for everyone. Hopefully, if you guys are have been alone throughout the holidays or you haven't been able to travel, we've been able to give you guys a little bit of comfort and a little bit of company over this stretch. We I really appreciate you guys sending in questions today, as I always do, um, especially this time of year when everyone's a little bit distracted everything's people have things going on they're out of their normal routine so the fact that we still got a ton of questions means a ton so thank you guys very much for sending those along kent let's get to our first voicemail here hi robert this is jeff i'm a lifelong giants fan i remember bill parcells and lawrence taylor winning super bowls with phil sims and eli manning even getting to the super bowl with carrie collins wasn't that bad now we're announcing that we're keeping Joe Judge and Daniel Jones for one more season. Why now? Why? What have these guys done to make anyone think that things will get better? We've gone from beating Tom Brady's Patriots twice in the Super Bowl to being the worst franchise in the NFL in 10 years. Where do we go from here? It's awful. Thanks for listening. Best wishes for a great new year. It's a great question. We have not discussed this at all since the report leaked. uh, I think it was last week about Joe Judge and Daniel Jones coming back. I'm curious what you think about this. Like, what is the outside opinion of where the Giants are as a franchise right now? Because like Jeff alludes to, it's been a pretty precipitous fall here over the last decade or so. When you look at their record over that time, when you just think about the way that we discuss them, just kind of how they're viewed. I mean, they're closer to a punchline than they are one of the model franchises of the NFL. And that's a pretty recent development. Yeah, it's a little bit funny because we 
like said for forever that they were a model franchise, the ownership, you know, they let their coaches coach, they trusted them. They, you know, didn't make, you know, rash decisions. They hired the guys that they wanted and let them, you know, do their jobs. And, you know, now they're kind of in that cycle where they're churning through everybody and it's still the same ownership. So, you know, if you were going to say, you know, 15, 20 years ago, Oh, great ownership. That's what's leading to success. Well, you know, still the, the same family owning it. So yeah, they are mired in this kind of rut right now where it's, you know, mediocrity or a little bit worse. And, uh, I mean, Daniel Jones is coming back next year. Like he's got guaranteed money and he's relatively cheap quarterback on the whole of it. And, you know, a lot of franchises want to upgrade their quarterbacks, but it's not that easy to do it. You know, this year doesn't look like it's going to be the greatest, you know, draft for quarterbacks either. So it's not like, Oh, let's just clean house and we'll rebuild around someone in the draft. Because as of now, like there's not even a guy that's really a consensus, like top five pick. So, it's, it's a little bit tough to do that. Uh, it would make more sense, I think, to move on from the Joe Judge side of things than maybe Daniel Jones because, again, it's easier to probably replace that coach than it is the quarterback at the specific moment. I would just say, like, it seems like from all indications, you know, Belichick was kind of grooming Judge to be this head coach and, you know, Belichick really liked him and thought he had great potential and all this stuff. And I think the, the Mara family, you know, is – trusting of Belichick's recommendation I know that was part of the hiring process so it seems like he still has that trust um you know for whatever reason doesn't seem like that's eroded um you know we've talked about before of coaches being able to you know shift blame onto a lot of other people and a lot of other things I don't know if that's specifically the case you know from the outside in it sure looks like it's not the greatest coach team but again are they necessarily going to get someone better next year I don't know so it seems to make a little bit of sense to kind of pair those two together and, you know, hope for the best. I'm not sure anyone's sitting here saying like, oh, if they just go get the next hot, uh, you know, offensive coordinator to be the head coach, like he's going to transform Daniel Jones. Like that's not necessarily a thing we're saying. So I think maybe, you know, the idea behind it is run it back for another year, you know, see if Jones makes a jump, see if, you know, Joe Judge can improve the team. And, you know, for the most part, you know, coaches you'd like to think it better as, as the years go on. So uh, it'll be interesting, you know, from the outside in again, don't really love either of those options. So I don't know what to think uh, if I were a Giants fan. My take on this is that their priority here is to seem like a model franchise, sometimes to their own detriment, right? So when they move yeah, on from Pat point. Shermer, they keep Dave Gettleman and it's like, all right, we're going to have him here. This, this is a uh, sign of stability. It's a projection of stability. Where we're going to have this guy who's been, a part of this franchise at various times in his career for a very long time. And as we get our new coach, the GM is going to stay, despite the fact that we'd had many indications that he was not properly equipped to be a GM in the modern era with some of the decisions that they made, whether it's drafting Saquon number two overall, some of the other moves that they made. It felt like there were a decent amount of missteps with his tenure, and there was really no upside to keeping him while bringing Joe Judge on to be the new head coach. It feels like Jason Garrett as a decision as an offensive coordinator, was a projection of stability. This is a guy who's been a head coach. You know, He's going to be another voice in the building that you know. It's, the messaging on that is pretty easy. I feel like all of those things, combined with a guy like Joe Judge, who is supposed to be the perfect encapsulation of stability, right? He's this special teams coordinator, CEO type head coach. He is supposed to be the ultimate keep the train on the tracks type of coach. And they do none of it. None of that stuff ends up working. And I think even what happened with Eli Manning toward the end was another example of them trying to project this respect 
and stability onto the franchise that isn't necessarily in their best interest. So I feel like by trying to hang on to that stability, they're doing it again here. By saying he's coming back, by saying both of those guys are coming back, you're just kind of being like, nothing to see here. Everything is going okay. Believe in what we got going on. There is no reason to leak that Daniel Jones will be the quarterback next year. Zero. There is no upside to doing it outside of you thinking you need to project to the world that everything that's happening in this house is burning down. They're not actually seeing it happening. That's what this feels like to me. It feels like the mayor is being like, guys, don't worry about it. Everything is okay. These guys are still here. Why would we fire another coach? Things are going fine. In reality, that doesn't matter. Hanging on to something that's not going in the right direction is not a sign of stability. It's a sign of delusion. And I think that's the problem. I think that is at the core of it. Well, I'd say for one, that's excellently said. So well done. Um, The interesting thing is it's almost like, you know, when GMs get these like, say fourth through seventh round draft picks or even like a free agent find and they're like decent players not great players but they sign them to like top of the market deals sometimes as like a patting themselves on the back deal to be like hey look see i found this guy in the sixth round and you know now he's top five paid at his position or whatever i feel like this is kind of like the the ownership version of it uh but i would say like you're saying oh it shows stability and promotes all these things but it's like to who because everyone's making fun of them everyone thinks it's a crap situation so it's like I suppose it's to the people who also think that taunting is an issue. So it's like, I don't know who they're you know, really portraying this to other than themselves. It's just interesting to, it does make a lot of sense, like, you know, show stability and show that you know, you're on the right track and there's hope for the future. But it's like everyone who's talking about you, your fans, social media, Twitter, NFL writers, everyone's saying this is a disaster. You know, Gettleman has been widely panned for a very long time and you could probably say last year was probably his best drafting just because he traded down and, you know, kind of got some some more capital there. Although, of course, he think he traded down and skipped out on a quarterback that's markedly better than his own quarterback. So who knows there? But, yeah, it's, uh, you know, everyone that they're, you know, promoting this stability to is kind of making fun of them and thinks that they're dumb for keeping the stability. So that's an interesting, you know, kind of juxtaposition. And I think the way they've spent money is another example of this, right? They've thrown thrown around money in finances, especially when it comes to free agents and saying, all right, well, we have solved these problems, right? You can point to the Nate Solder deal. You can talk about what happened with Adore Jackson this offseason, the Kenny Galladay deal that they just signed, what they gave to Leonard Williams after making that trade when they were kind of sitting there in no man's land. I mean, think about how many sticker price players they have on this team and think about how many true difference making players they have on this team. Those things are incongruous. Like there is a well, big separation really between those two. Because you can't divide by zero. So, you know. <laughs> and you look at it. I mean, that's the thing with this team is that there's nowhere to go. They have an extra first round pick next year. Well done by you. It was a great move at the time. It was very smart. The Bears were absolutely a contender to be one of the five worst teams in the NFL this year. Getting their first round pick, pat yourself on the back. Wonderfully done. But this is a team that has $978,000 in cap room next year. Think about how hard it is to do that, to be one of the worst teams in the NFL and also have no financial flexibility. And there aren't that many deals that they can easily move on from, right? Saquon's yeah. deal has, is there's no, no, no savings on Saquon's deal. They're, the Leonard Williams deal, they just handed out. He's making $27.3 million next year. James Bradbury is going to cost them $22 million against the cap next year. Adoree Jackson is going to cost them $15.5 million. Sterling Shepard has $7.9 million in dead money left on his deal next year. 
Kenny Galladay has a $21.1 million cap hit next season. Jeez. They went with like the Rams stars model, except they just there gave no out stars. star money to not, without the stars. <laughs> it's rough. Yeah. And you try to do that in order to stabilize things. That's what you're trying to do. It's like, all right, let's hand out these deals. Let's give out this money because we need to fill these holes at these positions. But this is where you find yourself. When your offensive line is rotting, when you are cycling between offensive line coaches, it's, that's the thing. They project this stability when in all reality, the things that really stabilize you as a franchise, really good assistant coaches, a very well-coordinated offense that's consistently puts its players in positions to succeed. Those are the things that weren't stable. So all of this projection and all of this posturing is for naught. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm just thinking at it from the Giants fan perspective. I suppose you could take solace that the Jets are still a little bit more of a mess than you are. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know if you can necessarily argue that. No, I think I think on the whole, you'd probably say at this moment, the Jets have a little more projection. But also, like at this moment, the Giants still have a better record. Zach Wilson's looked much worse than you would have expected. You know, their left tackle has been out for the whole year where the Giants left tackle is, you know, finally look like he's getting a little bit better. Um, obviously head coach you'd give to the Jets and, you know, GM. So it's an interesting one, but you can uh, always go back to scoreboard and <laughs> look at the the wins and losses. And, you know, it's uh, not the greatest. I'm just, I'm trying to find silver linings. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult to do and I'm doing my best. All right. Well, after I just gave the Giants a bunch of shit here for the last 10 minutes, it's time for me to take one on the chin. Can you play our next one here? Good morning, Robert. Uh, belated uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year's to your family. This is Mike, a uh, transplanted Giants fan in Miami. And I have a question about the upcoming tilt between the Giants and Bears and their families and how both have been kind of run into the ground uh, by the McCaskies and the Maras uh, and the fact that uh, their fathers were titans and then uh, in the league and then of course uh, they went through their own wilderness years in the mid 60s the 80s and just the parallels between these two organizations and basically the really terrible football that they put on the field uh during the 10 years of of the mccaskies and, and john k mara esquire i'd like your take on it what you think should be done uh to to remedy the situation with both franchises thank you very much and have a great day so we just talked about the giants for a while And we can, I think, apply similar thinking to the Bears and what they need to do. The Bears, thankfully, does not seem like they're going to be hanging on to whoever is in charge. At least the coach is probably going to be gone this year. It feels like... Was was any part of you disappointed with the victory from this past weekend? Yes. Yeah, I saw that little smirk. You didn't want to say it out loud, but... (laughs) It's because it's it's what twofold, right? You wanted the draft pick, and then you also didn't want anything. Well, draft that pick doesn't matter. They're trading keep... away the draft pick. Oh, They're trading right. away their first round pick. So, but to me, it was if they would have had a clean break today, and they would have started looking for a coach while no one else was looking for their coach. I think that would have been fine. Okay, yeah, that yeah. that to me is not a bad outcome. But it, that doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. If this is going to make a difference in who's making the decisions, then we're so far gone that none of this matters. <laughs> then it, it, we're way too far past being saved. I feel like I talked about this on Barnwell show a little bit, having them really look at everything, having this be kind of an existential moment where they think, all right, we need to really evaluate how all of this works. Our Adam Johns of the athletic has done some reporting on this. Other people have talked about it. it really does feel like the organization is considering kind of a top down restructure about how they're going to do this for the people who don't know the bears power structure, the way that it works 
is George McCaskey is, I believe the chairman is his t- actual title. And then Ted Phillips is under him as the president. Ted Phillips has been on the business side of the organization for a long, long time. My understanding and the way that it's presented is that they kind of leave the football side alone. You know, they hired those people, but Ryan Pace has a lot of control over what the football side of things looks like. I feel like they need someone. And that's kind of the argument about, well, if they fire Ryan Pace and they fire Matt Nagy, it's still the same people making these decisions. And the people that have made these hires in the past, Ted Phillips and the McCaskies, if you look at the way that this has gone, you go from Lovey Smith and Jerry Angelo, which was a pretty solid decade of stability. They were consistently relevant. You know, they were um, the precipice of winning a championship. They went to two NFC championship games, went to a Super Bowl. They were a pretty good team. For that era, I thought that they were well-constructed. I thought they did a really good job. Then they go from that to the Mark Trustman, Phil Emery era, which is just a very strange blip in history, right? I mean, it was a disaster for a couple of years, and it was an outside-the-box hire to go get Mark Trestman from the CFL. He didn't have a ton of recent NFL experience. It did not go well. Then they overcorrect from that by going to the most establishment hire you probably can by hiring John Fox as the head coach, and that's when they go get Ryan Pace. After they fire John Fox, they go get a new kind of chic coach. They go get an offensive coordinator from the most exciting offense in the league in Matt Nagy. And then we still have this Nagy pace partnership. So now the question is, why is the next hire going to be different than the ones that have come before? And that's why I think kind of reevaluating how the power structure of the organization works and seeing and asking yourself, do we need someone in the building who is a football person? who understands this world, who understands the people in it, who isn't somebody like Ted Phillips on the business side of this? Is that going to help? And I think the answer is probably yes. I think considering someone like a Trace Armstrong that's been rumored, who was a CAA agent for a very long time for coaches, understands that world, that to me is interesting thinking. And going with something like that, where you bring in someone at the top, kind of oversees the football side of this, and then you think about what type of coach and GM you want. And I don't, we've talked about this in the past. I don't know who good coaching candidates are necessarily all the time. I don't know how the best coordinator is going to translate into that job. But I think in terms of GMs, looking at someone who comes from a place that has solid process, right? Looking at somebody from the Colts, for example, like Ed Dots, who's their assistant GM, someone that is patient, that builds a certain way, the exact opposite of the way the Bears have built and the way that Ryan Pace's Saints built when they, he was there. That's kind of my thought here is that bring someone in that's kind of an overseer of what the franchise is supposed to be and bring in a GM who is going to try to build this in the right way on the right timeline, all of that kind of stuff. It's easier said than done, but that to me is where I would start. Yeah, that's, it's tough because, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking of the Mike Holmgren, uh, Cleveland Brown stint where he gets brought in as, you know, a football guy and, you know, kind of gets carte blanche to run the organization because the ownership just doesn't really want to run the team. And, hey, you've, you're a football guy. You've had a lot of success. You know, you go ahead and hire everybody. Um, your plan makes a little bit more sense uh, than, uh, you know, that worked out for us back in the day. But yeah, it's just, uh, one of those things that, it just seems like until they make those decisions, it's going to be tough to kind of formulate it. But as you said, I mean, it's been essentially a decade of, you know, mired in this kind of rut as well. So they definitely need to do something a little bit different. And, you know, kind of getting back to Jacksonville too, like Shad Khan has made all these decisions for a decade and, you know, they 
had that one good year other than that it's been pretty poor and so if it's the same person going through the same process making these decisions and they keep coming up fruitless like at some point that process needs to be broken up and you know maybe looked at in a different manner so hopefully they're able to you know realize that themselves and not just hire whatever you know firm is in charge of leading the uh coaching search this year and, and really get some you know new direction and some new blood in there well, you talk about the the Jags, but what they did with Tom Coughlin, I think, is similar to the Holmgren thinking, right? Let's bring in someone who's done this before, who's a lifer, who's been around. I don't necessarily think that gives you stability. I think hiring someone who's near the tail end of his career isn't necessarily the way to do this. I would much rather try to go a little bit further outside the box with someone who understands that world, but isn't, you know somebody coming off a 25-year stretch as a head coach who's in his 70s and maybe isn't necessarily as plugged in with the current climate of the sport, the coaching world, all of that stuff. That, to me, is not a way to go with this. No, not at all, because you're asking them to do basically three roles, kind of like oversee player personnel, oversee coaching, and also like oversee the business side of what the head coach has to do. And for the most part, like obviously those guys have dabbled in it and have experience with it, but like they haven't been that head decision maker who just runs the entire football side from top down. Like there's so few of those that exist. I don't know, Belichick might be like the only one right now that, you know, you can go find, you know, Pete Carroll in five years, you know, just because he was a really good coach and a culture setter and all this stuff doesn't mean he's going to be a great GM and a great, you know, business guy who then hires a coach and, you know, runs an organization. So I think it's a flawed system. I mean, I kind of brought up Holmgren tongue in cheek because obviously that didn't quite work out. Can't remember the last, you know, quote unquote football guy head coach to come in and have that role that was, you know, super successful. Obviously, I would say Elway was probably the most recent one. And aside from Peyton Manning, I'm not sure, you know, how much you can really uh, attribute to him. And uh, as you said, he built that defense. I mean, they they built that defense that essentially won them a Super Bowl in 2015. Like that free agent class they had in 20, I think it was 2013, where they brought in like Tlaib and DeMarcus Ware and all those guys. Like That was a nice little flourish of team building that eventually won them a championship. I think that's probably where it ends, though. Yeah, I mean, I still think... It's really just the Peyton Manning piece that brought it all together because, I mean, Chicago's had a few pretty awesome defenses that you could probably put up player by player with Denver back then. And they had Mitch Trubisky at quarterback or they had, you know, whoever else a quarterback. And that can get you into the first round of the playoffs and a pretty ugly exit, but not much past that. So, yeah, it's uh, again, it's going to be interesting. I'm glad that's not the team I'm rooting for. Uh, I'm sure my time will come <laughs> as a, a Chiefs fan. But for now, uh best head coach best quarterback it's a pretty awesome situation to be in what do you think about the Vic Fangio future in Denver do you feel like that they should keep running this back and I want you to say this as an unpartial observer as an impartial observer not as somebody rooting for the Chiefs do you think that that would be in their best interest as a franchise to keep this thing together coaching staff wise for another year I would lean towards yes at the moment just because it seems like quarterback has been what's holding them back and that's obviously not Fangio's you know expertise and we've talked enough about wanting to get that offensive piece and that's the most important part and that if you're building a football team and no matter the level of your quarterback accentuating that guy's strengths and making him the focal part of your team or the focal point of your team is really the most important part and so you could look at Fangio and say He's not the one to make that happen because he's defensive head coach. He's a little more conservative in terms of you know play calling and relying on the defense and punting and field position. 
But on the flip side, he's not really the one that drafted Drew Locke or that brought Bridgewater in or that had these other decisions that he's been stuck with these, you know, subpar quarterbacks. So they still play hard. I mean, the defense had a pretty good game yesterday against the Raiders on the whole. And I wouldn't say that that game came down to anything more than the offensive line. I think they, there's a stat that they gave the most pressures of any team this year in a football game. And, you know, Drew Locke in combination with that didn't look so hot. So it seems like they're still playing hard. That's one of the key indicators. When you look at the Lions this year, they've played hard pretty much every game. And you look at the Giants and what we were just talking about, it doesn't seem like they're necessarily, you know, having these games where they're, you know, into it for all four quarters and, you know, continuing to improve as the season progresses, even despite the record. So, yeah, I, I would probably lean towards running it back. Again, I don't know that this year's crop of coaches are particularly exciting at this point as well. So, you run into the situation of who do you replace them with? You know, we've seen certain teams that lose their defensive mind and they regress a little bit as well. So taking the head coach away from the strength of your team and now substituting an offensive piece without the quarterback to really run that thing and then making your defense worse. I'm not sure that's a a net upgrade on the whole. Do you feel like going to get an offensive minded head coach and kind of changing the overall personality of the franchise would be a point toward getting a quarterback. Well, I think you float those things towards Aaron Rodgers' camp uh, as early as you can and see if they'll hire, I don't know, Van Pelt or whatever guy he likes at the moment. Yeah, it's an interesting situation. I, I would almost That's lean... kind of my thing is that it, I, uh, Vince, what Vic Fangio has done, he probably deserves to keep his job. But is that how you should dictate your decision making right you know i don't I'm know torn that, on it i don't know that rogers is going to go there like gung-ho about pat Shermer's offense now the offense has shown some cool things they have some good run schemes you know they got a great offensive line coach in munchak so they have a few pieces there in a weird way it might be easier to replace the offensive coordinator than the head coach in terms of like oh rogers wants this guy or you know if the watson thing you know clears up and you know he's acquitted and everything who does he want or who does this guy want like you can find that quarterback coach that the guy likes or the co-coordinator who can take the lateral job or a certain situation where a team lets a guy out to take a lateral job to to be with the quarterback i feel like that's almost more malleable because changing the entire face of the franchise for one specific guy to then maybe have enough draft capital and have a team agree to trade you their guy i'm not sure that's the right process either so it's a really tough situation leaving that spot quasi open to let the quarterback of your choosing you know fill the role if he's on your team i don't think that's the weirdest decision although it's it's tough to do that in i don't know february or once the draft rolls around in may even but again if the draft rolls around in may and all of a sudden rogers is available and you trade for him and he says oh i don't want Shermer as coordinator i want this guy I feel like that's easier than saying, oh, I don't want Fangio as head coach. I want this guy. You know, I feel like that's an easier switch to switch out the OC later on. I, I don't know. I go back and forth about it. I don't know what the answer is because I don't want to be that guy who's just like, oh, just fire him. Just start over. I mean, why, why would you keep him? Because that probably isn't the answer either. I think it's somewhere in between and I'm just not sure where I land on the whole thing. Yeah. Is there is there any element as well that once you fire Fangio, you hire, you know, the hotshot offensive coordinator to be the head coach Nathaniel Hackett whoever it is like give me ex-offensive coordinator right so are you 
do you lose a little bit of leverage in the quarterback game? Because now, you know, the Packers are looking at you saying like, oh, I know you hired that guy so that, you know, he can groom whoever, you know, we want an extra second rounder out of you or whatever. Or is it just the quarterback has a certain price and it's going to be four ones and you got to meet it regardless? I feel like it's the latter, right? I'm not sure that who the coach is is going to have a huge impact on what those conversations look like. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that too, but I just wanted to, even if there's a 10% chance that maybe teams think like that, I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty sure you, for Rodgers and the, the the Broncos and where they are right now, you're going to be able to get whatever you want. If a team's going to want them, they're going to go get them. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right. Next question here from Andrew and Austin talking about the Washington football team game from last night. It says, as much as that sucked, I still believe in the general direction of the team under Rivera. Given where they were when he was hired, if you told me they were a seven-ish win team at the end of his second year, I would have taken that, given how desolate things felt at the end of the 2019 season. I do believe the culture has shifted, and they generally have some idea of what they're doing in this organization. Tonight, they've been a team that plays hard and doesn't embarrass themselves, even when undermanned. There's a lot of hope that they could build on the 2020 success. While the end result has been disappointing, much of why it happened is understandable and explainable. Success in NFL rebuild is not always linear, at least in terms of wins year to year. I look at these first two years, the Rivera regime is a success, even if not a resounding one. Now, the question is, how can they move on to phase two, which is building a contender? My question is, what does the ideal path look like from here? specifically this offseason. Obviously, quarterback is number one on the list of priorities. However, I don't necessarily see this team as a quarterback away. Keeps going a couple other things. I I feel like this is something we have not really talked about. We have not really talked about the dip that this team has taken in this second year on Rivera, where they were supposed to be headed, and now kind of how they can redirect course toward where they want to go. I'm curious what you think about this. What what do you think they need to focus on this offseason to kind of get this thing going back in the direction they want it to go? I mean, it's easy to start with quarterback, obviously. I would say the first like month, month and a half of the season, especially when uh, Chase Young was healthy, their D-line not taking over games like we expected them to and not making the leap that we expected was probably the most important aspect because we went into the year and we talked about their top three defensive line already, and this is a you know defensive line that can take over a game. You know, I remember the very first game of the year, Pittsburgh against Buffalo, Pittsburgh D-line doesn't even have to it and Watt and Hayward and Highsmith just entirely took over the game and that's what we thought you know Washington could do this year it didn't really happen it seems like they're rounding into form a little bit Jonathan Allen is a beast on the inside Ioannidis has always been great you know sweat flashes we thought Chase Young would be a top five guy this year so figuring out why that didn't progress the way it needed to I think would be the the key to it You you look at say the Chiefs the past two months, what's changed? Their front four is the best in football over the last two months. That's what changed. 
why did the 49ers get to the Super Bowl a couple years ago? Because they had the best front eight in football with, you know, the, the two deep on their uh, defense line, really the, the front four. But I'm just making a joke how they had eight guys deep. So for the <laughs> most part, figuring out how to make those guys the dominant force of your team the way they should be, the way we expect them to be, that's going to be the, the focal point. Now, number two would probably be offensive line. You know, those kind of go in tandem. You want your front four to be dominant. You also want your offensive line to be dominant. And we've seen, even despite injuries this year with Philly's a great example of a pretty awesome offensive line really being able to take over a team and you know lead, lead for success and allow the quarterback to do what he needs to do. So those two pieces, you know, as the the guy said, obviously quarterback's number one. That's always number one. But aside from that, it's why didn't the D-line progress the way we expected and can we get them back on track and progressing? And then number two, fix that offensive line. I don't think it's necessarily bad per se. I think it's, you know, better than everyone expected. Leno's plugged in well. You know, Cosme's does some good stuff. Obviously, Scherf's kind of always got those few injuries every now and again. But really making that, those two things, the strength of your team, that allows you to not necessarily need the greatest quarterback as well. You know, Heineke, we talk about, we like him. He's a little bit like a little Fitzpatrick in terms of the variability. Well, how do you make a guy like that less variable? You strengthen his offensive line. You don't make him make these decisions on the run or under pressure or things of that nature. And, you know, as you're looking at it now, you got to face Dallas twice a year. Good luck with that defensive line. You know, Philly's always got guys on their defensive line. The Giants, not quite as much, but we'll say four out of the six games you got to go against, you know, pretty awesome defensive line. So uh, definitely want to invest in the offensive line. I feel like that's a very good answer. I think that that's one area where they have to do some thinking this offseason. Leno is a free agent. Scherf is a free agent. They could save $10 million by moving on from Flowers. They can kind of remake this thing. They've got like $80 million in cap space. It's not as if they're locked into this version of the team. Feels like they got aggressive with some of the moves they made this offseason. I don't blame them. You know, I, I celebrated the idea of like, oh man, what can Curtis Samuel and Terry McLaurin look like with Ryan Fitzpatrick? That's going to be a fun, entertaining offense. I, I was excited about that idea. I thought the offensive line overall could be functional, which when healthy, it, it kind of was. But this is a team that can go a few different directions. I'm curious what the quarterback conversation will look like and what the options are going to look like, how they see some of the candidates like Jimmy Garoppolo, for example, is Jimmy Garoppolo a worthwhile pursuit for a team like this? What does he give you outside of that Shanahan offense? Do you want a quarterback like that? How much of an upgrade is it over Taylor Heineke? Do you, could you need a more aggressive move than that in the trade market? Is there a more aggressive move than that to be had? Like These are the questions they're going to have to answer here over the next year. And I don't, I don't know exactly how that's going to unfold. That's the number one question. Outside of that, I feel like the other two things are, what are you going to do with that offensive line? Because I think that the skill position talent, when healthy, is fine. I, I think that they can probably survive with McLaurin if, Sam, if Curtis Samuel gets back, what Logan Thomas is, Antonio Gibson, all of those guys. I think the offensive line is definitely the focus on offense. On defense, I would consider figuring out a new person to coach the defense. Like what they were on defense this year, considering how much talent they have, especially up front, I don't think you can justify bringing that back and just saying, oh, we'll, we'll figure it out. Like them ranking 28th in defensive DVOA or whatever they do, that is a massive disappointment. There, there is too much talent on that side of the ball for them to look like they have on defense this year. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, I don't watch them quite enough to know whether it's, you know, defensive coaching scheme, whatever else. 
obviously you have guys that don't progress and you kind of go to coaching as the reason that that's not happening. So here's a question for you. I feel like we don't really talk about this team as not having their starting quarterback. Is it because Fitzpatrick just isn't seen as like a top 15 or 20 guy? Is it because we see Heineke as kind of like low-level starter, really high-level backup? or is it? Be- I think it's because we see Heineke as Fitzpatrick adjacent. I yeah, think that's so essentially why. like the jump between number one and number two is like three quarterback levels of like or three quarterback rankings on like, you know, the first 45 guys you're going to. So you're saying basically you're going from like number 22 to number 25 and it's not that big of a decline. Yes, I think that's why we talk about it this way. Yeah, because I feel like any other team for the most part is like, well, they've been out with they've been without their starting quarterback the entire season. So maybe that explains why they're not having quite the success. But uh, but with Washington, we don't really mention that their quarterback has been out the whole year. So, yeah, it's uh, defensively, again, maybe uh, Fangio slides in there after, you know, Denver oh, axes him. See, that's that like awesome. that's exactly what I want. Yeah. Like if they can go out and get somebody like that, like Jack Del Rio was out of the league for three years. We don't necessarily have this recent track record of Jack Del Rio being this great defensive coach. I think going out and getting somebody like that 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 might be available this offseason, that to me is way more interesting than running this back with Jack Del Rio for another year. I don't need to see that again. Offensively, this team is like a functional NFL offense with a guy who was playing in the XFL a year ago and an offensive line that's been kind of banged up. They're on like their sixth center I don't think there's anything wrong with the way they've played offense this season, but the direction of the defense is troubling to me. So I think, and I don't know if Ron Rivera will necessarily do this. I feel like him moving on from a former head coach, it feels like a move that might be a little bit too rash for somebody like him, but I do think that they might be well served by considering that and seeing if they can go a different direction defensively next year. He also seems like a guy who takes everything into account and, wouldn't be afraid to make those types of decisions so i would imagine that's on the table especially if you know again we keep talking about guys getting fired well who are you replacing them with well all of a sudden fangio is on the table that's a pretty good jump so if you do have that market also a chance mike zimmer is not going to be a head coach in the nfl next year yeah that's true i feel like his star has you know kind of waned a little bit i don't know he just seems like a weird one because he's we talked about he's been a head coach for so long that you kind of don't think of him as like a true defensive coordinator anymore so where he lands and what he's able to do will be interesting but it just seems like it's been so long since we talked about him as like just the defensive coordinator architect of the defense like whenever you're talking about the vikings it's oh it's zimmer's defense but thinking of him as like strictly just a dc it's been so long that it's kind of funny to like think about it in those terms at least to me all right Kent, can you play us our next voicemail i have a feeling you're gonna like this one hey robert i love the show i'm calling from uh, outside Kilgore, Texas. I just wanted to know, it seems like the Cowboys personnel department has been really good at finding talent, not only in free agency, cheap deals on um, on guys that are lesser known, um, not big names, but also like racking up talent in the draft. But it seems like they don't seem to get credit for that. Um, even if you account for the fact that they kind of got lucky with finding Prescott in the fourth round, Will McClay and even Jerry, Jones, Jerry and Stephen Jones just seem like they don't get their credit it seems like the national perception continues to be that you know jerry jones just throws money around tries to find big names um even amongst the smarter writers can you explain to me why that is um love to hear your answer and your thoughts thanks i don't know how you feel about this 
I've long thought that the Cowboys did a really good job of assembling talent. It's why I thought the last few years of the Jason Garrett era were so frustrating. Because when you looked at their team, they had stars all over the place. I mean, you look at that that team in like 2019, 2018, in the kind of the meat of that Dak Prescott rookie contract, I was always so bewildered at them ruining and throwing away all of those cheap years of Dak when they had all of those other good players on the roster because I thought they were so good at finding people. So I've thought that they've been really good at assembling talent for a while. My concern has been them utilizing that talent. I weirdly think you're both right. Like, as I was listening to that message, I thought, huh, you know, you don't necessarily think, oh, the Cowboys are a top five drafting team. I don't know if it's because they don't have, you know, that one central GM that's separate from (laughs) the owner and the owner's son. I think that's definitely part of it. Yeah, because... you can't go there and say, oh, it's, you know, Ozzy Newsome and he's a top five drafter. Or it's this guy or it's that guy. So I think that is part of it. And that's maybe why you don't see like, oh, Cowboys is a top, top five drafting team. I'm also with you. I would imagine that most people agree with you and think the way I do that they get great talent. They've had, they had the best offensive line for a few years and most of those were homegrown guys. I mean, in the past decade, they've drafted two Hall of Famers in Tyron Smith and Zach Martin. Travis Frederick would have been if he had yeah, stayed, if he had yeah, kept so playing. That's I mean, a good it's... point. So three, essentially, they got Ronald Leary, who was a lower round draft pick, who's been awesome. I mean, Lyle, weird situation, but he's been a good player for him as well. So they have drafted well. They found guys in all rounds too. It's not like they're just using these first and second round picks to acquire guys. To the caller's point again, and to your point. Yeah, it's what they've done with the talent once they've gotten it there. It's coaching and also the extensions. I think the Zeke one stands out in particular, but uh, the Jalen Smith deal as well, people kind of panned that from the get-go, and no one thought that that was going to be uh, a deal that panned out for them, and it, it didn't. So, yeah, they're able to get the the talent. They don't get the credit because there's not one central figure we can point to and say, oh, that's the bona fide GM. And once they have the talent, they until the past couple of years have not been able to capitalize on it so i mean kudos to them it, it is true we don't necessarily sit here and say oh yeah cowboys top five draft team let's go through all the drafts and you know show show off how awesome they've been i mean barnwell and i did a show around the draft last year about the top 10 drafting teams of the last decade and the cowboys were right there and that was not surprising to me when you look at the amount of talent that they've had look at if we went back through okay so I think Will McClay's first year there was 2014. His first year as like a vice president of player personnel or whatever his title was. He was, I think, the director of football research for a few years. But I think his first year as vice president of player personnel, so let's put an arbitrary endpoint on that, was 2014. The 2014 draft, they drafted Zach Martin in the first round and Demarcus Lawrence in the second round. 2015, Byron Jones in the first round, Randy Gregory in the second round. 2016, Ezekiel Elliott, Jalen Smith, Malik Collins, Dak Prescott. 2017 is the bad year, right? It's tackle Charlton in the first round, the year that TJ Watt was available. Cowboys fans are still upset about that, despite having like a defensive line full of aliens. They're still really pissed off about not getting TJ Watt that year. That's fine. That tends to happen. You have down years. The Chidobi Uze was still in that draft. Jordan Lewis was in that draft. Players that have played for that team and they, they have actually gotten some use out of. 2018, Leighton Van Der Esch in the first round. Obviously, that has gone a certain way. But Connor Williams, Michael Gallup, Dalton Schultz, all in that draft contributors to this team 2019 Tristan Hill in the second round they traded their first round pick for Mari Cooper Connor McGovern Tony Pollard also in that draft 2020 CeeDee Lamb in the first round Trayvon Diggs in the second round Neville Gallimore in the third round Tyler Biotish in the fourth round 
And then this year, they go get Micah Parsons, uh, 12th overall. Every single year, they have added depth pieces, stars consistently. And the the moves they've made, even guys like somebody, I think it was Matt Bowen pointed this out, and I think it's a great point. What they did this offseason to go remake the defense, not only with obviously drafting Prescott, but going to get a guy like Jaron Curse, who just plays a very specific role within that defense. They've done such a good job of building not only the star level of their roster, but the connective tissue of their roster, whether it's guys like Blake Jarwin or Dalton Schultz, just the way that they've kind of constructed this thing, it's been really, really well done. And I have thought this for a few years. Like That's why I watching that team, I will never, ever, ever forget being at that game between the Seahawks and the Cowboys in the playoffs. I think it was after the 2018 season, the 2019 wildcard round or divisional round, whatever it was. I was in Dallas watching that game. And I just remember sitting there thinking, how can you waste... <laughs> these teams and these quarterbacks as somebody who roots for a team who's been desperate for a quarterback for 20 years watching teams with those two guys and that level of talent on them just slam their heads against the wall I just couldn't deal with it anymore and that to me has been the shortcoming of this Dallas team I feel like they deserve a ton of credit for the talent that they have accrued and assembled over the last five to ten years yeah you reading that list that that was nuts because Oh, they had like one and a half bad years of drafting over a seven-year stretch. You know, the first round, you're only hitting 50% of the time, let alone as you go down. And they're hitting superstars and potential Hall of Famers with at least 50% of their drafts and if not multiple guys in a single draft. So, yeah, that's a pretty nutty stretch. Obviously, they've been able to accumulate talent. Has not translated into Super Bowl success, much to Jerry's chagrin. Luckily for us, we get all his good quotes every year, so it's kind of a <laughs> win-win for all of us. And you know, he gets to go buy another four hundred million dollar mega yacht and cry away his sorrows with his Johnny Walker. So it uh, kind of works out for all of us. It does seem like this year, especially coming off you know, quite a dominating performance against Washington, could be the year. And they are starting to figure things out. And that defense, man, just being able to line up guys. I mean, we've talked about it, but being able to line up that amount of talent and guys who can play different spots and try to confuse you know offensive lines and running backs and quarterbacks and get certain matchups it's really fun it's really special and they're playing at such a high level and you know even though i'm obviously an offensive line guy i do like to see a dominant defensive line and i enjoy watching you know a defense line take over a game so it's been fun and can't wait to see what they do in the playoffs And I think one other aspect of this that's absolutely worth mentioning, we give other teams that do this a ton of credit, and I don't think the Cowboys get nearly enough credit for this. They don't spend money in free agency. So all of these guys that they've drafted, when they move on, they are on this comp pick merry-go-round in the same way that a team like the Ravens is. And we give the Ravens a ton of credit for that. Tyler Biotish was a comp pick in the fourth round. In, 29, in 2020, okay? They had a comp pick in the fourth round that year and a comp pick in the fifth round. In this most recent draft in 2021, they had a comp pick in the third round, they had a comp pick in the fourth round, and they had a comp pick in the fifth round. They're just getting these guys. This is how you replenish the machine over and over and over again. This is how you stay a really good drafting team all the time is by having a ton of draft picks. And they've managed to continue to do that. You know who else was a comp pick? Dak Prescott. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what that was from. Kent, do you remember what that who signed away to give them a fourth round comp pick that year? 
It was round four, Jeremy Parnell and Jamarco Murray. I think yeah. it was Jeremy Parnell, but it was either one of those two guys who went to the Jags as offensive lineman. Yeah. I mean, he got a really nice deal. Again, that's just, it really helps when you can kind of replenish this thing over and over again. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. That's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, next one here from Round Ball Rock. He said, coaches and GMs are linked together for obvious reasons. So let's rank them on how the coaches feel about their quarterbacks from I can't live without this guy to I have his face on my dartboard. For podcast purposes, you don't have to do all of them, but top three and bottom three. I, this is really fun. I, I was thinking about this, and it was hard for me to do. I wanted to ask you just right off the bat, how much do you think Andy loves Patrick? Like, do you think he's he views him as like I so I'm so glad I have this guy. Like, I put my head on my pillow every night, just thrilled to death that this guy is my quarterback. Or is it I've had some success with other guys, but this is nice. There's the quote floating around about the prime rib. I would say he thinks Pat is a five wagyu, just the absolute <laughs> best he can do. You know, money no option. Uh, you know, just slather that baby and go from there. No, I, I think he's very obviously fortunate to have pat and he's a big part of why pat has had the success he has i don't think he is a guy that's like oh i could do this with the 12th best quarterback and turn him into a it's like no they they know what they have in pat the other thing is pat is so special and he's so fun and he's brought this youthful enthusiasm to coach that i didn't see my first couple years there so pat has brought more than just success on the field it's also this energy this youthfulness this fun 
you know, all these crazy plays that we're seeing, you know, we weren't necessarily running all of those in 2016 and 2017. <laughs> you know, the quarterback wasn't going in motion as he was catching the snap. And we weren't running every variation of shovel pass and all these fun things. You know, Pat has definitely helped on the field and off the field. So he, uh, I'd say A5 Wagyu for, for the comparison. So he's probably up there then. The other guys that I had, and this is just from conversations I've had, I think Brandon Staley and Justin Herbert is an underrated one. I think that is uh, – there's an affection there for, for what Justin Herbert's talents are as a quarterback. That's kind of, and also I think that some of these younger guys, like younger quarterbacks with these head coaches, it's like, oh, this is a huge part of what we're building here. Like, I'm yeah, so Taylor glad Burrow. this guy is part of it. I, Taylor Burrow is my second one. Like, I absolutely think that Zach Taylor is going to bed every his drives home and his drives into. The, I always think about it this way: like when you have one of those guys, just what it does to your day. When you're waking up, when you're driving to the facility, when you're sitting down digging into work, just that peace of mind of knowing you have one of those guys and the way it changes everything about what you are as an organization, like that's what Zach Taylor has now. It changes everything about his job. And I think he probably knows that. And the other guy I had kind of in that same mold is Kingsbury and Kyler Murray. Like yeah, those I mean, three guys to me is like, yeah. I feel like they know exactly what they have in those young quarterbacks. I would love to know the honest answer to McVay Stafford right about now. <laughs> yeah, that's so I would have put that if before the year before the year is number one by that, far. I would have put that way at the top because of how he was talking about him. I think it's still one of those things where that that honeymoon is not totally worn off. I think some of the things that they can do, it's such a change from what it was like near the end of the golf era. I, it's not at the top anymore, but I think it's in there. The one that I would be fascinated if like you injected some truth serum is Lafleur and Rogers. Yeah. So I mean, that's I think everyone wants some truth serum into that relationship, and uh, got to think about inject. Yeah, <laughs> that's nice one. So my my bottom ones were. This year, Sean Payton, just whatever guy. No, I you mean, can't do that, though, because of Taysom. He loves Taysom. He went and asked Drew Brees and Phil Rivers if they could quarterback the team at Christmas. No. It, it, no. You cannot, you cannot say that he does not. No. That's We're not doing okay. this right now. We're not doing this in September. As of this exact moment. If you created the situation for yourself, you cannot you Those weren't the this. stipulations. <laughs> it was as we talk, which <laughs> head coach is looking at his quarterback. All right, all right, fine. fine okay, fine. Here, here's a good one: uh, Flores and Tua. I think that's near the top of like the quote unquote worst. Right, the guy looks at his quarterback and says, "Yeah, not so good." Even despite the way the Tua has played this year, I feel like and how he's kind of performed within that offense, I think that's probably closer to the top than other people might think. My number one, which is also some round ball suggested this one, and I think this is right, is Zimmer and Cousins is definitely near the top. Like that one is absolutely has to be near the top. And I think the other one that's creeping in right now is the Browns and Baker Mayfield. Yeah, that's a good one too. I mean, Fangio's got to be there too, right? Who? Fangio, because it's literally costing him a job. <laughs> yeah. Do you just do you do like the the half and half? You know how like parents do the split jerseys. Does Fangio just have like a half lock, a half teddy? <laughs> lock water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, those are the ones I had near the top. I didn't have that many other ones that I thought were like really bad. But I thought Lafleur Rogers would be fascinating. Yeah. Just to hear like because Rogers does so much for them. But I'm 
it's also he's a very specific kind of quarterback. The control that he has, I think earlier in their time together, there was more of a tension than there is now in terms of how they kind of constructed it, how they would assemble the offense. I feel like now it's really rolling. But I'd be curious what they would say about one another. And I wonder what the Arians and Brady like I'm sure Arians is happy that Brady's just kind of there keeping everything going. Like that's a really nice thing to have. The other one, I, I feel like McDermott is probably very happy about Josh Allen. Like the way that they've built that thing over there and he's at the center of it. And Lamar and John Harbaugh is another one. I was like, I wonder what that was. See, one so I thought of like those right last now. two. Harbaugh, I feel like, is so established that it almost like doesn't count because he was that's already fair. awesome and they knew what they were getting in Lamar, and that's the reason they sought him out. And McDermott in a similar vein like they were building that thing with two pretty mediocre at best josh allen years and so mcdermott kind of laid the foundation before the quarterback took off so i don't think it's like making him the way you know a kingsbury per se would be um but yeah it's it's really interesting uh to the rogers lafleur lafleur thing i feel like we haven't talked about offensive control in a while i don't watch them and think oh rogers has so much freedom to do what he wants you know i think part of that was at the time, he came from McCarthy and probably had a little bit more of the Peyton Manning influence and being able to get to the line, be in a two-by-two two formation, be in a three-by-one, you know, call the play that's called, get to the line of scrimmage, fake the cadence, see what the defense is doing, and be like, okay, I have five plays I can check to right now. And for Rodgers, we know he loves that kind of stuff, and that was really fun for him and being able to you know, be the quarterback on the field and choose the play. And the floor system is very much, you know, you can have two plays in the huddle and you kill one and go to the other based on the look, but everything is tied to the other thing. It's not just, all right, roll yes. out the two-by-two two formation, no one's moving, no one's in motion. So when's the last time you've really seen Rodgers go up to the line and just completely change a play and call something totally different? You don't really see it. So that control thing, I think LaFleur has proven himself to allow Rodgers to not say, oh, well, if the two plays you don't call, I don't like, I'm just going to kill it and completely come up with something else. You don't really see that happening. So I think that's worked itself out. They have a certain level of trust with each other. But yeah, the, the truth serum and getting their uh, you know honest thoughts on each other and the whole situation, I think we'd all love that. I, I think that's exactly right. And if you look at it, their offense has been really well served by him playing more in rhythm within the structure of the offense, on time, all of that stuff. And I think that's why LeFleur deserves more credit for the success that they've had than he probably has gotten. But I also think that when you look at the way he can kind of control the game with RPOs, some of the ways that they just have the quick game aspect to their offense because of him, right? I mean, that offense is not built with those sorts of route concepts with other quarterbacks because they're not as adept at playing that way as he is. So I think that's kind of the thing is that it's such an amalgamation of the two styles that they both want that it's hard to understand how much LaFleur would say, well, if I could do it my way, this is how great it would be. Because Rodgers solves so many problems inherent to that style of offense that they don't have to deal with because he's the quarterback. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to default to having Rodgers and dealing with all the other things yes. and trying to make it work. So I think, yeah, there's a reason he's not in our top or bottom list. He's, you know, in more in the middle, you know, figuring out whether it's, you know, five through eight or, you know, 25 through 27. That, that'll be the interesting thing. All right, speaking of the Packers, very quickly, Jeff in Green Bay asks, 
Packers offensive line has been hit hard by injuries. Many other teams have injury bugs, so I'm well aware of this, and I'm not feeling sorry for them. Jenkins tearing his ACL has been the worst. Myers going out early in the year in the absence of, Bak- of Bakhtiari, just to name a few. As the regular season comes to an end, I'm worried we aren't going to see Bakhtiari at all. We thought he'd return after their bye week, but then learned he had a knee scoped, cleaned up during that time. Should we be worried that we're not going to see him at all? Regular season game reps would be ideal prior going to the playoffs, in my opinion. Wanted to get your thoughts. I wanted to talk to you about this because we haven't discussed this at all. And now that we're getting toward week 17, week 18, they're going to be the number one seed in the NFC. You know, Everyone sees them as this true Super Bowl contender, which I think they are. Should we be worried about this? Like, Is this going to show up in the playoffs against a really good team in a way that it hasn't all year? Because we've given them credit for overcoming the injuries they've had along the offensive line, which has been undeniably impressive. But I feel like we should be talking about it more as a potential Achilles heel when they're trying to win a Super Bowl. We absolutely should. They're going to have to play Dallas's D-line, the Rams' D-line, the 49ers' D-line. The Bucks, And I know them, the Bucks have been dinged up a little bit, but think about that NFC Championship game last year when they didn't have Bakhtiari. Right, yeah. Bucks are coming to find out what a few injuries at a certain position can mean to your team. So, uh, you know, not bitter at all about last year. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think we should be talking about Green Bay's O-line a, a little bit more and the downside to it because you know, we were just talking about styles. Rogers still likes getting the ball in shotgun, holding, it, holding onto it for six seconds, kind of making something happen, floating around in the pocket. He was able to do that for so long because the O-line was healthy and had good players. You know, they're currently playing at a pretty good level despite the injuries, but that's going to rear its head. All these things tend to. You just you just don't really see teams win the Super Bowl with some consider the best left tackle in football out and then an all-pro left guard out. So it's it's going to be tough if most teams, if you take their best two offensive linemen off the field, you know, pretty bad things happen from there. The Packers have been able to mask that with, you know, defense, quarterback play, scheme, you know, all these other factors. But when you go up against the best teams in, in the NFL, you know, back-to-back weeks, assuming they get the one seed, um, and then, you know, into the Super Bowl potentially, typically it tends to show itself. So it is concerning. Uh, we'll see how that shakes out. But obviously they're, they've are they been coping for a bit, and they'll continue to, you know, help those guys out as much as they can. Yeah, I just – it's definitely something that I feel like should be getting more attention. And I'm guilty of it because, again, I think we've given them credit for overcoming it. But it's like, oh, man, the Cowboys one is a great point. I think we will once we have time to talk about only two games a week or only four games a week. Oh, because God, right I now, <laughs> I know. Because right now, <laughs> I, I mean, there's 16 games and it's, you know, a little bit more surface level stuff. And then you analyze after the fact. It's a lot less, oh, these are the specific things going into a week and they're facing this team that has this dominant force and blah, blah, blah. But once you get into Green Bay's playing the Cowboys and all week you're talking about Cowboys defensive line against Green Bay's O-line, yeah, it'll get the attention it deserves. All right, very quickly here. Paul in DC asks, with the recent snub of Lane Johnson to the Pro Bowl, I was wondering which players on this year's Eagles team are destined for the Hall of Fame or Hall of Very Good. He lists off a bunch of guys. I want to focus on a couple specifically. Jason Kelsey. Do you think Jason Kelsey is a Hall of Famer? See, off the top of my head, I'd say yeah. I just don't know enough about the process, but he's had a 12-plus year career and a bunch of accolades, so I'd lean yeah. He has the most first-team All-Pros of any center over the last decade. He has three, and... I, th- I think he's second among all interior offensive linemen. I wow. think the only person with more first-team All-Pros among interior offensive linemen since 2010 than Jason Kelsey is Zach Martin. Yeah. So it feels like he should get in. I mean, he's been arguably the best center of his entire 
era. Yeah, I mean, he'll go down as one of the best centers of the decade. Super Bowl champion, all pros, Super Bowl champion helps. Pro Bowls. Personality. Yeah, he's kind of got everything you're looking for. So, uh, yeah, good good decision by him to hang, in, uh, hang on for the last three years. <laughs> Don't know about his brother, though. The, the Chiefs are clearly better without him on offense, so it feels like that might be a ding to his Hall of Fame candidacy. Maybe they can trade him to the Eagles and convert him to center. <laughs> All right. Lane Johnson. I would lean towards yes because he's getting older without any dip in athleticism or any of those things. He has the accolades as a right tackle that you typically don't have, so he'll get some extra love that he's gotten his whole career that most right tackles don't get. You know, Right now, Willie Anderson's kind of the test case for that. But it seems like Lane has transcended the position a little bit, and he's always been, you know, kind of that in between. That hey, this is a left tackle playing right tackle. It seems like I mean, he just signed another deal, so it seems like he's going to play well into his thirties. Again, Pro Bowls, All Pros, considered. I think he was the tackle of the decade for the two thousand tens at right tackle. So he's got all those accolades in the Super Bowl, and now he has a touchdown catch. So that's what they'll show for every highlight. So uh, I'm going to go yes on that one as well. I do think he is ultimately going to get there. And I think it's for exactly the reasons you said. I'm so glad you said that about him kind of transcending the position because so he is, he was not on the all decade team. The all decade for the 2010s was Jason Peters. It's all left tackles. Jason Peters, Tyron Smith, Joe Staley, Joe Thomas. So I think that there is an argument to be made that he has transcended the right tackle spot because even like the contract, even like him kind of resetting what those deals look like twice, I, I twice, I think should be taken into account. Like the fact that we saw him as somebody who was kind of pushing that position forward. He probably needs some more accolades. I think the injuries have hurt him when it comes to year end awards and stuff like that. But I do think he's trending in the right direction. Another one that Paul asked about was Brandon Graham. Brandon Graham is like a perfect hall. Very good player to me. Like he yeah. is a hall, a very good player. Somebody I liked watching for a really long time is, is not a hall fair. No, and as much as he has, you know, the PFF uh, accolades, you have to have like the normal accolades, and no one's gonna look back and Sack say, tolls. "Oh yeah, he yes. was a top ten guy." In really any year, like you just don't think of him as like a top five or top ten guy in a specific year. So unfortunately, he just doesn't have those, you know, specific things that the Hall of Fame looks for. Getting two Hall of Fame offensive linemen on the same team, though, that's it's pretty good. It's, it's a pretty good bit of uh, team building there. We've talked a lot about Hall of Famers on offensive lines today with the Cowboys and the Eagles. All right, final question here. This one comes from Mitch S. from Kansas City. You wanted to ask me this, and it's a great question, and I'm excited to dig into it. Let, let me hear it. Okay, so I've been thinking about some – we've talked a lot about head coaches, and you know we've talked about trades and stuff. Jacksonville, say they have the number one overall pick. They pick up the phone, call New Orleans, ask for Sean Payton. Jacksonville – Sends a number one overall pick plus what to New Orleans for Sean Payton and what? Because in my mind, there's a couple ways to go. You could do like the number of number one picks, like three number one picks over three years. You could do two ones and a two. Or you could just do the one number one overall pick. And New Orleans sends back some guys. They're always in you know cap hell. They send back a couple guys, get them off the cap. And it turns into a little bit of like an NBA salary dump as well. So curious where you're going to go with this. Uh, but I've been mulling that in my head for the past few days and wanted to talk to someone about it. So I feel like my first response to this would be, why would the Saints do this? Like, what, what would the price have to be in order to justify moving on from a coach like Sean Payton at this stage of your franchise? Because... 
I think you could make an argument that they are kind of retooling a little bit and that time of transition might be the time to do something like this. But I got the answer. You need a quarterback. It's not in this year's draft. Yes. You get two number ones to add to your draft picks and then you package all those for X quarterback. Now, obviously, you don't have Sean Payton to coach him, but you could probably find a guy who's pretty good. But this is the only way to get the franchise quarterback. And I'd say, you know, Sean Payton is in his late 50s and uh, potentially you'd prefer to have a franchise quarterback of some sort. You know, obviously, you'd prefer to be a young guy um, over doing all this just to get a couple more years of Rodgers. But if this gets you the draft capital to then get the franchise quarterback, that could end up being worth it. So you look at it. All the cap stuff is very confusing because they're like bonuses and roster bonuses and, and Taysom and Hill's kind of stuff. quadruple level deal. Where if he's yeah, the, just the Taysom a Hill teamer. stuff, like Michael Thomas is a twenty four point seven million dollar cap next year. I want to say that there's some sort of roster bonus involved where if he's traded before a certain time or cut before a certain time, they could save some money. So if you wanted to like unload his deal, because right now if you look at it. They have two hundred sixty sixty nine million dollars in cap liabilities <laughs> like next year. The cap is a two hundred million dollar cap. Yes. So that is, it's a consideration. I think Jacksonville sends the number one overall pick plus Tim Tebow to New Orleans for (laughs) Sean Payton and Drew Brees. I think it's hard for the Saints to justify. No, in a draft without a quarterback, even with some of the naughtiness of what their roster looks like right now and the fact that they are in a time of transition, I just think that having a top five, arguably, head coach is way too valuable of an asset. Like it would to me it would have to be multiple first round picks. Like the number one overall pick this year plus a first round pick over the next like two years at least. And yeah. then if you want to shed some salary too. I just think the price would be way too high. Cuz for for the New Orleans it's just hard to justify. It's hard to justify moving on from a guy like that. The defense is like just quite too good to make that happen because if they were not this good, you could say, "All right, we need a hard reset." It's going to be a three to four year process. You know, Sean's going to be in his early 60s. We're not sure how many more years he's going to have. We know he doesn't want to go through this. You know, maybe there is that path that you just kind of hit the reset button. Obviously, you don't want to go full Sashi, but, uh, you know, go three quarters Sashi and um, turn that thing over. And on the back end, you know, you either found the right coach who studied you through the, the storm or in four years, there's. You know, Sean McVay's kid is finally able to coach and you know you can hire him as the head coach. So I, I agree. I think it doesn't make sense for New Orleans. But I kept thinking, like, if Jacksonville has a number one pick and they make that call, like, I'd love to see that for Jacksonville. New Orleans, I could see just being like, all right, we need an absolute hard reset. Uh, but it just doesn't make sense to get rid of that coach. The Saints are a lot older than you think they are. I know that's the thing they're they're ready for it I thought they would have done it this year honestly but they're ready to do that which is the the wild thing it's just like the defense is still playing well the the single year that they stop playing well they're gonna go from like an awesome defense to like a bottom third defense because all the age is gonna show all at once and then they're gonna be stuck with these cap hits and guys they can't get rid of and like it's going to get really ugly. So to have foresight and just be like, you know what? This might not make the most sense for just next year, but for our franchise for the next five to 10 years, like this is what we need to do. I don't think it's that inconceivable to say like, this is what we should do. I just think it's inconceivable to actually put that in motion and, you know, hear about it from everybody for the next five years. 
If you look at it next year, Michael Thomas is going to be 29. Cam Jordan's 33. Toronto Armstead's going to be 31. Taysom Hill is going to be 32. Demario Davis is going to be 33. Andres P 29. Anya Mata is going to be 30. Ryan Ramchek's going to be 28. Malcolm Jenkins is 35. Even Kamara is going to be 27. I know. That's why I, I thought they should have reset this year, honestly, because the quarterback situation. Now, Jameis did play better than we expected him, and if he had stayed healthy, that probably would be a playoff team. But this is a team that's kind of in need of that reset because they're old and they're more than super expensive. Uh, so it needs to happen at some point. Running the string out just kind of delays the process. And again, who knows how many years Payton has if you're spending three years kind of stuck in this mediocrity of being, you know, a 500 team that really doesn't have a chance of winning at all. And you're wasting three years of, you know, Payton's career just to do that. I don't know that that makes sense either. So it's, uh, it's an interesting one. I don't know. Okay. What about first overall pick for Dennis Allen? I probably wouldn't do that. Yeah. I feel like you could go get a Dennis Allen adjacent coach. Even though he's been very good. I think he's been very good as a defensive coordinator, but I think that probably isn't worth it. I agree. But I just wanted to see I, a reaction. I cannot wait to see how they try to dig out of this financial hole. It's, Dude, it's, it's awful. I mean, they always do it. They always manage to do it. But you look at it, and there is every single guy that they could potentially cut costs with, their base salary or their cap it, there's what it's set to be in 2022, is essentially what the dead money is. Like Cam Jordan, $21 million in dead money. Demario <laughs> Davis, $10.5 million in dead money. Is, is Teron Andres a Pete, free agent? No. Yes. Yes, he is. Okay. See, I yeah, thought he was. Yeah, they, they, they move money around, so it's like they're taking the cap hit next. They're taking yeah. the hit next year. Because I, I thought in my head, too, what about you know if they weren't going to re-sign Teron and he wasn't a free agent, you know, Peyton and Teron come back and he's got one more year left and New Orleans wanted to move on anyway and get the money out, but he's a free agent, so that didn't work out in my head. God, it's it. They'll they somehow will do this again, but it's going to involve pushing a lot more money onto a lot more future years. Which yeah, and you don't have the quarterback that can make it all right, unless you think Jameis is that guy. But I I don't think he's the guy that can transcend a team and have a hundred fifty million dollar cap around him when the cap's two oh eight. Like I don't know. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> oh boy! All right, that's all we got. Thank you very much for doing this. Appreciate you doing it during the holidays. Appreciate you guys sending in all of your questions. Seriously, the fact that you guys do this every single week makes our jobs a lot easier, makes my life a lot more fun. So thank you very much for doing that. We'll be back next week doing the same thing. We will be back tomorrow with Mina Kimes. We're going to talk about the last decade of Seahawks football. And if this is the end of the Carol Wilson era, whether it should be, how we'll remember those teams or dig into all of that with my one of my favorite seahawks fans so really excited about that conversation please come back and check that out please rate and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice i sincerely appreciate that please subscribe to the athletic theathletic.com slash football show if you have not you should definitely grab a subscription before the playoffs we'll be back tomorrow until then talk to you guys later this was the athletic football show